Well, always great to be here with you. Um, this last week, I've been reminiscing. Uh, those of you who don't know, I was in the Air Force for a long time and I just passed my anniversary of retirement as well as my anniversary of joining. And my father and I actually share the same entry and exit date. Uh, so he's always the one reminding me, hey, our anniversary's coming up. And so I was looking through uh, a bunch of my old pictures from Afghanistan. And those of you who are friends with me on Facebook has seen that I posted that. And so I'm reminiscing about a year that I might as well have been on another planet. It was just the strangest place and my life was, you know, just turned upside down for a year and living in just completely unusual circumstances. And of course, there's all this talk about how long we've been there and we have been there for a very long time. In fact, both my sons also went to Afghanistan. One's in the army, one was in the Marines. And it's very easy on the one hand to say, this is insane. Why are we still over there? Why are we spending so much money and time and what good do we do? Because it seems like as soon as we leave, it's all going to collapse. I wish it wasn't the case, but that's how it seems. But one photograph that I didn't post because it, it was from a very long range and didn't come out very well, but one scene that I always remember, and I saw this many days, was a group of girls going to school. And you see them, they're wearing their black robes and they have white headscarves. And that's something that is different because under the Taliban, girls could not go to school. Even now, many girls cannot go to school depending on which area of Afghanistan they're in and whether the Taliban are in control or not. And you think, there may be very little we've done, but that we did do for whatever reason. That wasn't our motive in going over there, but there was a change for some young ladies, young women, able to just go to school is an amazing thing. And the theme today is you are your own best teacher. We're talking about learning, searching for truth and meaning. And there was at least one example of where some good came out, certainly not the primary intent of our government or our military who are over there, but something that we noticed when we were on the ground, that something was different. And we can take for granted our freedom in this country to be able to search for truth and meaning in different ways and not have to fear government retribution or, or being murdered either for going to school or being a teacher in a school that some other group doesn't approve of. We have amazing blessings in this country for that freedom, something we should not take for granted, something we should be very mindful of. Our fourth UU principle, which we cited just a little while ago, we affirm and promote a free and responsible search for truth and meaning. This is a wonderful gift that we have, but also a responsibility because we are promoting both a free but a responsible search for truth and meaning. And so I want to talk about that aspect, the responsible search for truth and meaning that falls upon each one of us and part of this is understanding the role of teacher and student and, and our role in teaching ourselves and, and being, I really think, our best teacher. Not someone else but ourselves. Not to say we don't learn a great many things, but what is our role in all this? 
This notion of promoting a free and responsible search for truth and meaning encompasses a great deal, and probably everyone in this room doesn't agree exactly on what that means. And of course, it's not a divine statement. It doesn't come from God. It comes from people who've come together, caucused, met, worked together, reworded, and finally agreed this is something we can affirm and promote together as Unitarian Universalist. I think it's an important principle, a critical principle, so I want to offer some thoughts on that today. And as I've been doing the last couple of sermons, I'm going to share some stories from my life because we speak most passionately and at least most knowledgeably from the things we've been through. Our search for truth and meaning assumes that there is truth and meaning worth searching for. So that's an assumption we make, a leap of faith, if you will, that there's something worth doing in this realm. In a world where our political leaders have undermined the value of truth, it's almost become a mockery, it is even more vital and more important, more critical, that there are people who actually want to uphold honesty and truth as valuable as necessary in our society. And we must hold all of our leaders accountable on both sides of the aisle. Finding meaning might be a harder task. I'm not going to delve into the finding of meaning today. That's a separate sermon. But for the sake of argument, let's assume that there is meaning to be found. Even if that meaning is something as simple as a connection to another sentient being, the more important point, at least for today, is the fact that our search should be free and responsible. Part of that freedom and responsibility pertains to our search for and willingness to learn from a teacher or teachers. Uh, we don't learn in a vacuum. And as important as teachers will be in our lives, I intend to argue that the most important teacher that you have is you. Now, I've been going through the search for truth and meaning for many, many years. I started when I was young. My wife says I'm a fanatic personality, that when I get into something, I get into it all the way. I don't sort of just lukewarm it, if you will. It's either hot or cold. And to some degree, that's true. Of late, I've been involved in Zen Buddhism, as they mentioned in my intro. It's something that I find valuable, but you're going to learn I may not be the best Zen Buddhist for a couple of reasons. And one of these is protecting myself from the possible misconceptions uh, or rabbit trails of wasted time that some teachers offer. Something I would encourage all of you to do in your lives also is to protect yourselves and be wise. Uh, another example, I spoke recently in the Tullahoma Church, my home church, about my atheism. I gave that sermon here, the positive aspects of atheism. And I mentioned how it had freed me from guilt about having to convert other people. And afterwards, one of our members came up and talked to me, and she said, I really appreciated that aspect, to be freed from that guilt, because it was something she had also had to wrestle with for many, many years. And she said, something we don't talk about enough is how our brains, so much of our brains and our thinking, the way we think is formed when we're very, very young. And to break out of that when you're older is much harder than people realize. 
And I would have to agree that that is probably true. I've never studied it, but it makes sense. And breaking out of a mindset that you've been programmed with as a child is part of your search for truth and meaning, and it's a hard part. And as I had to break out of my programming, because I was programmed to believe that there's a heaven and a hell and a God that actually does those sorts of things to punish people for eternity or reward them forever in heaven, and then you have to spend your time wondering how to avoid the bad fate and get the good fate, that was programmed into me, and it was hard to break out. And I did not get to that point because of a particular teacher. Rather, I had a huge variety of inputs from many sources, and in the process, I had to reject the teachings of many teachers I had encountered in my life. And I was listening to other teachers who had written books, or done shows, or spoke in person. But as I have all these different inputs coming from different teachers, I was learning to rely on my own reason and common sense. I was learning to trust myself. But even today, very, very different than I was 30 years ago, I still see many examples of dangerous over-reliance on teachers. I see it even in things that I value, like my practice of Zen Buddhism. Let me give you a couple of examples, one from my life, one not. In Buddhism, if you've done any reading on it, you will learn very quickly that there are endless stories about a teacher and a student who have an incredibly close relationship over many, many years. And the student is trying to learn the wisdom of the teacher. And oftentimes when they talk to each other, it sounds like nonsense, it sounds like riddles. And to someone just reading it, it, it seems nonsense. But we are told that these stories have a cryptic meaning that this exchange between teacher and student has great value and eventually the student is enlightened or awakened or sees things radically differently. And there's even a phrase of, see, of the eyebrows intertwined, which means you are now seeing through the eyes of your teacher. It's like your two heads of sort of, <laughs> never mind the physical impossibility, your head is now inside your teacher's head or teacher's head's inside yours, and you're seeing the same way your teacher does. That's how important this is in Buddhist teaching. Uh, Pema Chodron, who is a famous Buddhist nun, teacher, writer, uh, been on shows with many, many people. Uh, Oprah did a special with her. Well-respected, wrote in her book, When Things Fall Apart, about this relationship of teacher and student. When making a formal samaya bond, this is the bond between teacher and student, and entering into an unconditional relationship with a teacher, it's like putting ourselves in the jaws of a crocodile. We need to take a long time to decide we trust that particular crocodile enough to stick with him or her no matter what. Long after I became his student, referring to Chagyam Trungpa, and long after I began Vajrarana practice, long after practitioners usually take the formal Samaya vows with their teacher, I finally knew without any doubt that I could trust him with my life, no matter what he said or did. He was my link with the sacred world. Without him, 
I wouldn't have a clue as to what that meant. It simply evolved it. As I followed his teachings and woke up further, I finally realized his limitless kindness and experience was the vastness of his mind. At that point, the only place I wanted to be was in the jaws of the crocodile. Now, this is from a chapter that talks about the importance of a teacher-student relationship. Now, these words seem a little more scary if you understand who this teacher was. Trungpa was a very influential teacher in North America. He spread an esoteric form of Tibetan Buddhism across the U.S. and Canada. He founded the Naropa Institute in Boulder, Colorado, which is now Naropa University, the very first accredited Buddhist university in the U.S. Um, there's a whole form of Buddhism uh, that has truly been established by him. Very influential. He wrote many books that are still well regarded to this day, but he died of liver disease due to his heavy drinking at the age of 48. He was a heavy smoker, allegedly used large quantities of cocaine, had sexual relations with many of his students, even though he was married. He was also accused of rape. According to Trungpa's former student, Stephen Butterfield, Trungpa told us that if we ever tried to leave Vajrayana, we would suffer unbearable, subtle, continuous anguish, and disasters would pursue us like furies. His strange antics could fill an entire sermon, and there's a special on him on Netflix if you're interested, and Pima Chodron appears in it. This is the person that she described as the crocodile she trusted. And to this day, she seems unable to reconcile his teachings and his irresponsible and allegedly criminal behavior. One student came to her accusing Trungpa of rape, and she said, I don't believe you. You were either into it or you're lying. And she did apologize for saying that later. But it took many years. If you have trusted someone this much and put all your faith in someone this much, it's really hard to open your eyes and see what's going on. So I'm not saying this to condemn her or criticize her. I'm saying that there's a danger to trusting any crocodile, not just one you've thought about a long time. It's a cautionary tale. Do not ever surrender your free will to someone else like that. And when I say that, I am undermining hundreds of years, thousands of years of Buddhist teaching, because I'm just not that willing nor should you be, to surrender to someone's teaching that much. My second story is a personal one, a little less grim. As part of my ongoing Zen training, I enrolled in an online group that did something called koan introspection. Koans are strange statements. They sound almost like riddles or the nonsense phrases I was talking about earlier. But you're supposed to meditate on them and then talk to your teacher about what you come up with while you're meditating on them. The most famous and the one that most use as the starter koan is very simple. It goes like this. A monk asked Master Chao Chu, has a dog the Buddha nature or not? Chao Chu said, moo. Moo, not like a cow. Moo as in M-U. M-U is a word 
being translated into English many different ways, meaning no, not, negative, uh, unreal. There's all sorts of different definitions, but most people will say it means no. Essentially, you're meditating on this question, does a dog have a Buddha nature? And the answer, no. But then you're told this, that you don't have to actually meditate on the whole koan, at least my teacher said that. What you really are meditating on is mu. And so as you meditate and you sit there and you clear your mind, you're supposed to essentially deconstruct this word, this strange word, mu. And after you've stopped thinking about cows, because that's inevitable, you start thinking about what's going on in this koan. And why am I thinking on the word no all the time? Every time I sit and meditate, why am I thinking on this word? And my teacher did say at some point, it doesn't actually have to be mu. It could be any word. Meditate on a word, pick it, meditate on it. Well, my brain immediately says, well, if the koan says, does a dog have a Buddha nature? And the answer is no. Why can I now ignore that entirely and just pick any old word? Because then what's the point of the koan? So already my brain is rebelling against the teacher. So I did this for quite some time, probably around the area of eight months. And I just imagine meditating on that for about eight months. And then every week, every other week, you'd get online with the teacher for 15 minutes of the video conference. And, you know, so <laughs> what new insights do you have into Moo? <laughs> After a while, I'm just shrugging. I got nothing. That, that's what I, I've got nothing. And he'd say things like, well, you must become one with Moo. And I'd say, I don't know what that means. You must become Moo. That, that's not helping. No, I, I would like to know what I'm supposed to be doing as I sit on the cushion and think on Moo. And, and it was essentially become one with Moo, be Moo. And, and after a while, I said, I literally have no idea what you want me to do and I'm, I'm, I'm nowhere. Now, understand, people work with Moo for years, decades even. So I'm obviously impatient because I'm at eight months and I've had it. So I'm not a very good Zen Buddhist, at least on the koan introspection side. And eventually I had to make a cost-benefit analysis because this isn't free. He's getting paid. And, and I don't begrudge him that. I mean, I, when I was a minister, I got paid, so okay. But I have to ask myself, is it worth what I'm spending to be told to become one with Moo? And when I say I don't know what that means, I, he, there's nothing. There's nothing. And I like the guy a lot. And he's smart. And he is fun to talk to. I have nothing bad to say about him. He's not like Chung Yung Trung Pa. But I did finally say, you know, I don't think this is the path for me. Everyone's brains aren't wired the same. That's a lesson, by the way, as you become your own best teacher, we don't all learn the same way. And so I finally did say, you know, I think this has run its course. Thank you. I really appreciate it. But, you know, I'm done. Uh, this is just not, I'm not doing koan introspection anymore. The other type of Zen is where you just sit and try not to think. And that is your meditation. That, that works better for me. I'm not enlightened or awakened haven't had any weird mystical experiences, uh, and other people do, 
And I just think my brain isn't going to do that for me. Whatever lets some people have these, I'm not. So that's part of being my own teacher. I had to make a decision in a situation where I could have said, I just have to trust this crocodile forever. Or I could say, you know, this isn't, this isn't working for me. I'm going to try something else. This is something I encourage each one of you to be willing to do. Don't ever let someone put you into a corner and say, you must listen to me. I've got the answers. You don't. Trust me. And how dare you think otherwise? Now, you don't find that a lot in Unitarian Universalism, to be, to be fair. But you do find it a lot in the world. And since we do encourage people to go and explore different paths, you may encounter this. My teacher wasn't like that. He didn't say, you're making a terrible mistake, you're an idiot or anything. He was very understanding. He was very cool about it. So I do appreciate him a lot, and I respect him a lot. He could have been, on the other hand, one of those who'd say, well, disasters will pursue you like furies, like Chung Yong Trungpa said. So what am I saying now about you being your best teacher? Am I saying that therefore you can't learn from a teacher? Not at all. Obviously, we learn from teachers. But there is a tendency, especially in the area of spirituality and religion, to give teachers too much importance and power. People end up in self-destructive cults all the time because of this. When something strikes you as odd, listen to yourself. Trust yourself when those alarm bells go off. If you are looking for a good teacher, I think there's some characteristics you should look for. So as you are being your own best teacher, you're still going to look for people to learn from. And here's some of these things you should look for. Teachers should not claim to know things that are unknowable. They should not expect all people to learn exactly the same way. They should definitely not abuse the power that they have, nor should they demand that you surrender your power. And they should offer insights with the full knowledge that you might reject it, and they should not take offense if you do. It's ridiculous to assume that everyone's going to agree with you. And teachers who insist on that aren't trying to be teachers. They're trying to maintain power. Be careful of that. I want to close with a portion of a blog posting by a teacher I do like quite a bit. And I've mentioned him before, Brad Warner. On his blog, Hardcore Zen, which is also the title of one of his books. He's written many. And this, this occurred, again, as happens so often, while I'm writing the sermon, because it takes me about a week to work on a sermon. During that time, I read this post. On Twitter recently, someone said to me, if I were a Dharma heir, and a Dharma heir is someone in Buddhism who has received transmission from their teacher, meaning I now think you've got it and you're free to teach, fully free to teach. I trust what you're going to do out there in the world. So this is getting a Dharma transmission. Now you're a Dharma heir and they actually track the lineage of you through your teacher, allegedly, all the way back to Buddha. No one, most people don't actually believe that, but it's a nice thing to maintain. 
If I were a Dharma heir with a large following, I would be using this critical moment in history as a teaching device, using what wisdom I have to comfort and instruct those who are upset. And then Brad writes, I asked the person who said that what he or she would teach. I never got an answer. Maybe the person who told me that thought I was trying to be funny, but I wasn't. I really wanted to know. I really wanted to read that person's answer. Maybe that person had figured out what I had not been able to figure out in 20 years of trying by writing books and blogs and making videos and talking to people in many places around the world. In all of these cases, I was attempting to do the exact same thing that person on Twitter wanted me to do, if they were in my position. I'm not trying to make fun of the person who said this to me. There was a time when I felt the same way about other people. There was a time when I felt like my teachers should be doing a better job. Sometimes I even felt like I could do a better job if I were in their position. On the one hand, I know I am not the kind of wise man people want me to be. Just like my teachers and the many others whose words I admired were not the kind of wise men and wise women I wanted them to be. Wisdom doesn't belong to me. It doesn't belong to anyone. The best way any of us can strive for is to put ourselves aside and allow wisdom a channel to come through. Sometimes it happens. Sometimes it surprises me. I'm sure it surprised my teachers too. Every moment is a critical moment. What can I say about this one? Honestly, I have no idea. As you look for teachers, I suggest you find ones who don't claim to have all the answers and who know when it's best to admit their ignorance. All teachers, all ministers, all people who stand up here and have the audacity to speak to you on a Sunday morning as though anything we have to say has any significance whatsoever, all teachers are human, fallible, and prone to the same mistakes and errors that you are. There is no elevation of the person up here over you sitting there. And if you think there is, you're making a fundamental mistake. Do not put teachers, ministers, anyone, speakers, up on a pedestal. Do not expect them not to have the exact same flaws, joys, miseries, trials and tribulations that you do. We are all human. And that phrase is actually profoundly important. If you understand this, you can protect yourself and honor your own self-worth and filter teachings through this understanding. The best student-teacher relationships start with mutual respect. If you have a teacher that doesn't respect you, leave. Find another teacher. That begins by respecting yourself and respecting what you bring to the learning process. You are the one who will have to take each moment of your life and see what you can learn from it. We call external forces the teacher, be it an event or a person, or any living creature for that matter. And when they teach us something, we call them the teacher and we're the student. But at the same time, 
Are you not teaching yourself, even in that moment, how to learn or how to ignore something that might be valuable to you? No one else is doing this for you. No one else is doing the thinking for you. So in this sense, you must be the teacher even while you are the student. We will never be as wise as we wish to be, but often we are better than we give ourselves credit for. And even when we feel lost or ignorant, if we are paying attention, sometimes wisdom does break through. And if it doesn't, we press on, doing the best we can with what we have and what we are. And maybe this is all the wisdom we really need. Thank you for being here today.